The Carleton College Convocation Program is a weekly lecture series that brings fresh insights and perspectives from experts in a variety of fields. The program has a rich history dating back several decades. The selected convocation speakers assist the liberal arts mission of centering thoughtful conversations within education and beyond. Good morning, everybody. My name is Ariana, and today it is my great pleasure to introduce to you our Convo speaker, Professor Stephen Levitsky. Professor Levitsky comes all the way from Harvard, um, where he serves as the director for the Rockefeller, um, um, David Rockefeller Center for Latin American Studies and a professor of government. Professor Levitsky is a prolific author. He has written numerous articles, papers, and books surrounding issues about political economy, democratization, autocratization, um, with a special focus on Latin American politics. He also coined the term competitive authoritarianism, which has shaped the way that political scientists view and classify regimes that may present themselves as democracies on the surface, but behave far more like autocracies in real life. Um, I am currently taking my first political science course called Global Crisis of Democracy, where Professor Levitsky's name and contributions have popped up quite a bit. What we are learning is that many say the third wave of autocratization is here and democracy is under threat. Professor Levitsky's papers are filled to the brim with insightful analysis, and yet he is able to shape this very pressing debate in a way that is accessible to us learning in the classroom. His expertise and brilliant writing shines through in one of his seminal works, How Democracies Die, with Daniel Ziblatt, that became a New York Times bestseller and achieved widespread critical acclaim. We will hear today about Professor Levitsky's upcoming book, Tyranny of the Minority, which builds upon How Democracies Die and delves into right-wing efforts to undermine multiracial democracy. Other highly cited works include Competitive Authoritarianism, Hybrid Regimes After the Cold War, and his paper with Vicky Murillo um, called Building Institutions on Weak Foundations that covers state capacity. Professor Levitsky strikes this unique balance between contributions to academia and public scholarship as a well-sought-after commentator and advisor on political issues. He has provided expert analysis and commentary for numerous media outlets, including the New York Times, Washington Post, and the BBC, as his expertise and insights into political developments are highly valued by policymakers, journalists, and public alike. Ladies and gentlemen, we have in our midst today a towering figure in the field of political sciences. So, without further ado, Mr. Levitsky, you have the floor, sir. Towering figure, I'm five foot three. Thank you, Ariana, and thank you so much for the invitation. I, I've uh, long wanted to visit Carleton and never had the opportunity, so I'm really, really excited. Um, I, just, I just learned very recently that you guys do these convocation speakers just about every week, right? And so my first thought was, my God, how do they not run out of good speakers? And then I thought to myself, Steve, they invited you. They clearly have run out of good speakers. So. Anyway, uh, as Arena said, I'm going to talk today uh, about a book that Daniel Ziblatt and I just finished and will be out in September, which is sort of a follow-up to How Democracies Die. Um, as all of you, I think, probably know, American democracy is at uh, crossroads. On the one hand, we stand on the brink of multiracial democracy, which is something that few societies have ever achieved. On the other hand, we nearly lost our democracy a couple of years ago. 
Freedom House has an annual global freedom index that scores all countries in the world from zero to 100, 100 being the most democratic. 10 years ago, the United States scored, got a score of 94, which put us basically on par with Canada and the UK and Germany. Today, the US score is 83, which is tied with Panama and Romania and is lower than Argentina. That may seem shocking, but when you have widespread efforts to restrict voting, when you have violent threats against election workers, when you have efforts by an incumbent president to overturn an election, you fall to the point where Freedom House considers you less, than, less democratic than Argentina. Now, this was not supposed to happen. Political scientists have discovered two seemingly rock-solid facts about democracies. First of all, rich democracies never die. The wealthiest democracies ever to break down, Argentina and Hungary, had per capita GDP of about $17,000 in today's dollars. The US is four times richer than that. The second seemingly rock-solid fact about democracies is that old democracies never die. No democracy over the age of 50 has ever broken down. Even if we date the birth of US democracy at 1965, which is when we achieved full suffrage, US democracy was over 50 when Donald Trump was elected. So we ought to be safe, but we're not. And in our new book, Daniel and I try to understand why we are not safe. And we argue that the United States is undergoing an unprecedented transition, a transition not only to multiracial democracy, but to one in which a previously dominant ethnic group loses its majority status. That has triggered an authoritarian reaction among a minority of Americans. But that, I want to suggest, is only part of the story. Our Constitution, which was built to protect us from majorities, not from minorities, has made the problem worse because it is protecting and empowering that authoritarian minority. That's the talk I'm going to give you today. So the starting point is that the United States, slowly but surely, is becoming a truly multiracial democracy. The US has grown far, far more diverse and more racially equal over the last half century. Uh, and that has changed the face of American politics. The number of non-white members of Congress has more than quadrupled since my bar mitzvah, and I'm not that old. Since 1980, the number of African Americans in Congress has increased from nine to 51. Number of Latino members of Congress has increased from, excuse me, African American in Congress, 19 to 64. Number of Latinos in Congress has increased from nine to 51. Number of Asian Americans in Congress has increased from six to 18. In 1965, as you all know, all nine Supreme Court justices were white men. Today, four out of nine justices are white men. Only six of nine are white. Public opinion has also shifted dramatically. For the first time, a majority of Americans consistently embraces two basic principles of multiracial democracy, racial diversity and racial equality. In 1980, again, about the time of my bar mitzvah, most Americans opposed laws to ban discrimination in home sales. They, most Americans thought it's up to the homeowner to decide who they sell to. Today, 80% of Americans support bans on discrimination in home sales. In the 1980s, the, a very solid majority of Americans opposed affirmative action. Today, Gallup finds that 60% of Americans support affirmative action. And more than 60% of Americans now consistently agree with the statement that the growing diversity of our society makes America a better place to live. This is an entirely new phenomenon. It is only in the 21st century 
that majorities in America have embraced ethnic diversity and racial equality. But the transition to multiracial democracy confronts two serious challenges, a powerful authoritarian reaction and a constitution that is amplifying that reaction. I want to take each of these obstacles in turn. When Dana and I wrote How Democracies Die, just five, little more than five years ago, we did not consider the Republican Party an authoritarian party. We wrote this in the book. We did not consider the Republicans to be an authoritarian party. History, unfortunately, forced us to revise that view. Political parties that are committed to democracy are what the political scientist Juan Linz calls loyal Democrats. Loyal Democrats must do three things. Parties committed to democracy must do three things. First of all, they must unambiguously accept the results of elections, win or lose. Second, they must unambiguously reject the use of political violence. And third, they must break completely with anti-democratic extremists. I want to develop the third point because the second, first two are pretty self-explanatory. Openly authoritarian figures, co-conspirators, violent insurrectionists, they tend to be few in numbers. By themselves, openly authoritarian figures usually are not enough to kill a democracy. But democracy's assassins almost always have accomplices, mainstream politicians who enable them. And these are what Juan Linz called semi-loyal Democrats, semi-loyal Democrats. Semi-loyal Democrats look like regular everyday mainstream politicians. They're not out there wearing fatigues or carrying AR-15s. They rarely engage in visibly authoritarian acts. So when democracies die, you will not find their fingerprints on the murder weapon. But semi-loyalists play a crucial role in enabling authoritarians by tolerating them, by condoning their behavior, and by shielding them from accountability. If you look at the democratic breakdowns in Europe in the 1930s, South America in the 1960s and 70s, one thing, one lesson is crystal clear. When mainstream political parties, the center-left or the center-right, begin to tolerate, to condone, to protect anti-democratic extremists, democracies get into trouble. So how do we tell a semi-loyal Democrat from a Democrat? Again, they're not out there wearing fatigues. They're not storming the Capitol. A useful litmus test is when anti-democratic extremists emerge in one's own ideological camp, among one's own allies. When they are faced with anti-democratic extremists in their own camp, loyal Democrats do four things. And this is straight from Funlins. First of all, they publicly condemn undemocratic behavior, and they will work to hold those who commit undemocratic behavior accountable. Second, they expel anti-democratic extremists from their ranks. They refuse to nominate them. They refuse to appoint them to public office. Third, they sever all ties, public and private, with political allies, with groups that engage in anti-democratic behavior. They, want, they wash their hands of anti-democratic groups. And finally, when necessary, loyal Democrats join forces with pro-democratic rivals from across the political aisle to isolate and to defeat anti-democratic extremists. Semi-loyal Democrats don't do these things. Rather than publicly repudiate anti-democratic behavior on their own frank, they downplay it or deny it, or they simply remain silent. 
Rather than expelling anti-democratic extremists, semi-loyalists will tolerate, will accommodate, sometimes will quietly collaborate with anti-democratic extremists. Many times semi-loyal Democrats strongly disapprove, will tell you they disapprove of extremists when in, 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 in private, but they are unwilling to publicly oppose them. And crucially, semi-loyalists are unwilling to work with ideological rivals uh, to isolate extremists, even when democracy is on the line. So even when democracy is on the line, semi-loyalists choose their anti-democratic allies over their pro-democratic rivals. Semi-loyal behavior empowers authoritarian forces by opening the door to mainstream politics, by normalizing extremists. So when mainstream politicians begin to tolerate, to condone anti-democratic extremists, it opens up a world of new opportunities for the extremists. Suddenly, mainstream media outlets start to interview them like other politicians. Donors who once shunned them decide that maybe it's okay to make campaign contributions. Leading consultants and pollsters start returning their phone calls. And activists and local politicians from across the country who once kept a distance from the anti-democratic extremists now decide that it's okay to join them, to support them, to work with them. The tragedy of semi-loyalty is that it's driven by normal political ambition. Semi-loyalists aren't trying to kill democracy. They're just careerists trying to get ahead. They tolerate authoritarian behavior because it's politically expedient, because it's the path of least resistance politically. But in so doing, they contribute in an important way to democratic breakdown, to killing democracy. Since 2020, the Republican Party has violated all three of these principles of loyal democratic behavior. They did not unambiguously accept the results of the 2020 elections. Not only was Trump the first sitting US president to refuse to accept defeat and to attempt to overturn an election, but crucially, maybe much more importantly than that, the bulk of the Republican Party went along with it. A group called the Republican Accountability Project, which is a group of never Trumpers, evaluated the public statements of all 261 members of Congress, Senate and House, all 261 Republicans in the Congress, to see whether in the aftermath of the 2020 election, they made public statements that cast doubts on the legitimacy of the 2020 election. 86% of them made statements that cast doubts on the legitimacy of the 2020 election, 86%. Cannot stress to you enough how dangerous this is. Democracy absolutely requires that parties know how to lose elections. When a major political party cannot accept defeat, democracy is in trouble. Republicans have also begun to flirt with political violence. Republican leaders embraced individuals who threatened and in some cases actually killed Black Lives Matter protesters, the McCloskey, the McCloskeys, the St. Louis couple that wielded their guns at, uh, at uh, Black Lives Matter protesters in 2020 were given a prominent speaking role in the 2020 Republican convention. Marjorie Taylor Greene nominated Kyle Rittenhouse for a congressional gold medal. And during the 2022 primary campaign, the New York Times found more than 100 Republican congressional ads in which candidates either brandished or fired guns. I can think of no other major political party in any established democracy in which candidates so openly embraced 
violence. But far and away, the most dangerous feature of the contemporary Republican Party is its refusal to break with forces that threaten democracy, its semi-loyalty. Election deniers, advocates of violence remain a relatively small minority within the Republican Party leadership. But among the party leadership, semi-loyalty is now pervasive. Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy knew very well that Joe Biden won the 20 election, and in private, by all accounts, they were troubled, quite troubled, by Trump's anti-democratic behavior. But they enabled it anyway. They protected Trump by refusing to impeach and convict him. They blocked creation of an independent commission to investigate the January 6th insurrection, and they continue to this day to say they'll support him if he's the Republican nominee in 2024. This is the banality of authoritarianism. McCarthy, McConnell, other Republican leaders did not actively try to kill democracy. They simply concluded that their short-term political ambitions were best served by enabling Trump's authoritarianism. McConnell believed, maybe correctly, that convicting Trump and, and creating an independent January 6th uh, commission would hurt his party's chances of winning back control of the Senate, so he didn't do it. And McCarthy knew very well that if he alienated Trump's allies in the House, he'd never become Speaker of the House. So Republican leaders refused to unambiguously accept defeat, began to flirt with political violence, and tolerated and even enabled anti-democratic extremism. Now, I am not saying, let me be clear, I am not saying that all Republicans are authoritarian. They definitely are not. Many are committed Democrats. But since 2020, most Republican leaders have abandoned our three basic principles of loyal Democratic behavior, which suggests to me that the party as a whole is losing its commitment to Democratic rules of the game. So the question is, why is this happening? Why would a mainstream political party like the Republicans suddenly lose the ability to lose? Arguably, for parties to accept defeat, for parties to routinely accept defeat, which is necessary in democracy, two conditions have to hold, two basic conditions. First of all, parties have to believe they stand a chance of winning again in the future. And second, the stakes have to be reasonably low. In other words, parties have to believe that losing will not bring ruinous consequences. When politicians, one, fear that they won't be able to win again in the future, or two, when they and their constituencies believe that defeat will bring catastrophe, then the stakes rise. Then politicians' time horizons narrow, and they start playing to win at any cost. In other words, I want to suggest that it is an outsized fear of losing and of the consequences of losing that leads parties to turn away from democracy. Think about the Southern Democrats after the Civil War. Reconstruction was this country's first experiment with multiracial democracy. It brought widespread black enfranchisement. African Americans were a majority, an outright majority, or a near majority in just about every post-Confederate state. So their enfranchisement terrified Southern Democrats and their supporters. Not only did black suffrage threaten the Southern Democrats' electoral dominance, it threatened the entire racial order in the South. In the face of what they viewed as an existential threat, the Democrats abandoned any pretense of democracies. One North Carolina Democrat declared it, I think in the 1870s, no, a little later, um, in the aftermath of Reconstruction, declared, and I quote, we cannot outnumber the Negroes, and so we must either outcheat 
outcount or outshoot them. And that's what they did. The Democrats used a combination of violent terror and election fraud to seize power across the South in the 1870s. Then they entrenched themselves in power by restricting the vote. All 11 post-Confederate states, all controlled by Democrats, uh, passed laws and constitutional reforms that enabled the use of poll taxes, property requirements, residency requirements to effectively eliminate African-American right, uh, voting rights. So turnout, black turnout in the South fell from 60% in 1880 to 2% in 1912. Unwilling to lose, Southern Democrats stripped the right to vote from nearly half the population, ushering in nearly a century of authoritarian rule in the U.S. South. We fear that a similar dynamic is taking hold of the Republican Party today. The Republicans are the party of a majority ethnic group, white Christians, whose electoral and societal dominance has come under threat. The roots of this problem actually go all the way back to the Civil Rights Revolution of the 1950s and the 1960s. And that was, 1950s and 60s, this country's second experiment with multiracial democracy. When the Civil Rights Act passed in 1964, the Republican Party was very much America's minority party, right? The New Deal coalition was dominant, and the Republicans were the smaller of the two parties. But the Democrats' embrace of civil rights, beginning in the mid-60s, alienated many of the Democratic Party's racially conservative white voters. That was especially true, not only the South, but especially true in the South, where the vast majority of white voters were Democrats. That alienation of racially conservative white voters created an opportunity for the Republican Party. Beginning with Goldwater, continuing with Nixon, all the way through Reagan, Republicans systematically appealed to white voters who were uncomfortable with government efforts to promote racial equality. And that strategy worked. Southern whites went from being overwhelmingly Democratic to being overwhelmingly Republican by the early 21st century. And as a result, the Republicans became the dominant party among white and particularly white Christian voters. The Republican Party has won the white vote in every single presidential election since 1968. 14 presidential elections in a row, the Republicans have won the white vote. Now, being the dominant party among white Christian voters is a very, was a very good deal for the Republicans in the 1970s and the 1980s because white Christians were about 80% of the electorate. So the Republicans won every presidential election in the United States between 1968 and 1988, except for the 1976 Watergate election. But being an overwhelmingly white Christian party became a problem for the Republicans in the early 21st century because the white Christian share of the electorate was in steep decline. In 1980, Ronald Reagan won 55% of the white vote and rode that into a landslide 44-state victory. 2012, 32 years later, Mitt Romney won an even more overwhelming 59% of the white vote, still lost the election. When Republicans realized that they were winning the white vote but losing the American vote, they started to panic a little. That's when we first started seeing Republican initiatives at the state level to make it harder for people to register and vote, 2011, 2012, 2013, right around the time of Obama's reelection. But that was a relatively minor problem. 
The problem wasn't primarily that Republicans were starting to lose elections. The core problem was that many rank-and-file Republicans came to view defeat as catastrophic. For much of the Republican base, not all, much of the Republican base, the rise of multiracial democracy felt like an existential threat. Because white Christians are not just any group. Historically, obviously, white Christians occupy the top rung in all of this country's social, economic, cultural hierarchies. For two centuries, every single president, every single vice president, every single speaker of the House, every single Senate majority leader, every single chief justice of the Supreme Court, every single Federal Reserve chair, every single chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff was a white guy. All the way through the mid-1980s, high school for me, every single governor in this country, every single Fortune 500 CEO, every single Miss America was white. White Christians defined this country's national identity for two centuries. Why am I saying this? Because all of that is now ending rapidly and relentlessly and right before our eyes. We see that in soaring rates of interracial dating in interracial marriage. We see it in the growing presence of non-white and multiracial families on television and movie screens. We see it in declining societal tolerance for racist behavior. We see it in challenges in newsrooms, in classrooms, to historical narratives that downplayed or ignored America's racist past. And of course, we saw it in the election of a, of a black president and a black vice president. We are witnessing an unprecedented assault on this country's racial hierarchies. But when you're at the top of a racial hierarchy, the leveling of that hierarchy can feel threatening. Losing one's dominant social status generates feelings of loss, of deprivation, sometimes resentment. It can feel like an existential threat. Surveys show that many MAGA voters feel like they're on the brink, not just of losing elections, but of losing their country. They feel like the country they grew up in is being taken away from them. And that sense of loss has pushed many rank-and-file Republicans toward extremism. In a poll a couple of years ago by the American Enterprise Institute, 56% of Republican voters agreed with the statement the traditional American way of life is disappearing so fast that we may have to use force to save it, 56%. Now, the Republicans' radicalization would pose much less of a threat if the United States were like other democracies, where electoral majorities govern. Again, most Americans embrace the core principles of multiracial democracy. Polls consistently show majority support in general for immigration, for ethnic diversity, for voting rights, for Black Lives Matter. But this new multiracial majority hurls itself, or is hurling itself, against some of the world's most powerful counter-majoritarian institutions. What do I mean by that? We tend to think of counter-majoritarian institutions as essential for democracy, and they are. They are essential for democracy. Modern democracy requires the protection of minority rights. Not everything can or should be up for grabs in an election. As Justice Robert Jackson put it, some domains must be placed beyond the reach of majorities. Two domains in particular absolutely must be kept out of the reach of majorities. The first is basic civil rights. 
Civil liberties like the right to vote, free speech, freedom of association, uh, freedom of assembly must be protected from the whims of the majority. So should many of our individual life choices. Elected governments should not determine or even have a say uh, over whether and how we worship, what books we read, what movies we watch, the race or gender of the people that we marry. A second domain that must be kept out of the reach of majorities is the democratic process itself. Elected governments cannot be able to use popular or parliamentary majorities to entrench themselves in power. For example, by changing the rules of the game to weaken their opponents or undermine the opposition. This is the classic problem of majority tyranny. And it's what we saw in Chavez's Venezuela. It's what we saw in Orban's Hungary. It's what we're seeing possibly in Israel today. So we need, we absolutely need mechanisms to protect the democratic system from majorities that would subvert it. Basic civil liberties and the right to fair competition are what I would call essential minority rights. Institutions that protect those rights include the US Bill of Rights, an independent judiciary with at least some power of, of constitutional review, and relatively high barriers to constitutional reform, super majorities rather than just majorities to reform the Constitution. These are what I would call essential counter-majoritarian institutions. Democracy can't live without them. But other counter-majoritarian institutions are not essential to democracy. In fact, some of them are antithetical to democracy. Democracies, after all, are supposed to empower majorities, right? If they don't empower majorities at some level, they're not democracies. So just as some domains must be kept out of the reach of majorities, there are other domains that really must be within the reach of majorities. Let me just mention two. One of them is elections. Those with the most votes should prevail over those with fewer votes in determining who holds political office. There is no theory of liberal democracy that I know of that justifies any other outcome. A second domain that should remain within the reach of majorities is legislation. Those who win elections should govern. Partisan minorities should not be able to permanently veto legislation that is backed by parliamentary majorities, provided that legislation doesn't violate basic minority rights. Institutions that prevent electoral majorities from winning or that prevent parliamentary majorities from governing are not essential to democracy. In fact, again, they are arguably antithetical to democracy. The US has an unusual number of these undemocratic counter-majoritarian institutions. The Electoral College, which allows losers of the popular vote to win the presidency. A severely malapportioned Senate, which provides equal representation to all states regardless of their population. The Senate filibuster, which allows a partisan minority to permanently block legislation backed by a majority. And a powerful Supreme Court with extensive review powers and lifetime tenure for justices, which allows Supreme Court justices in, appointed in one generation to thwart majorities for multiple generations to come. Now, we tend to think of America's counter-majoritarian institutions as part of a carefully calibrated system of checks and balances designed by far-sighted leaders. Some of them are. Some are not. Many of our counter-majoritarian institutions, in fact, were concessions made to small and slave-holding states during the Philadelphia Convention to prevent the convention from breaking up, to make sure they passed the Constitution, and to prevent a breakup of the, con of the convention from leading 
to threats to the union, the breakup of the union. So these were concessions to make sure that America's transition you know, reached, reached the shore. For example, the structure of the U.S. Senate, equal representation for states, was a concession to small states that very openly threatened to bolt not only the convention, but maybe bolt the union if they didn't get it. Both Hamilton and Madison opposed equal state representation in the Senate. Madison called it evidently unjust, and he voted against it. The Electoral College was an improvised second-best solution that was chosen after all the other alternatives were voted down. Madison preferred direct presidential elections, but southern slave states feared being outvoted by the North and rejected that option. Now, the Senate filibuster is not in the Constitution, obviously. It emerged really by accident several decades later. But it's worth noting or reminding ourselves that both Hamilton and Madison strongly opposed supermajority rules for regular legislation. Madison wrote that if a simple majority, if, excuse me, if more than a simple majority, if a supermajority were required to pass regular legislation, he wrote, and I quote, the fundamental principle of free government would be reversed. It would no longer be the majority that would rule. The power would be transferred to the minority. I want to suggest that these counter-majoritarian institutions now threaten American democracy. The concessions that were made to small states in 1787 built a bias into our political system. It overrepresented sparsely populated states. So the Electoral College favors sparsely populated states. The US Senate heavily favors sparsely populated states. And because the Senate approves Supreme Court nominees, the Supreme Court is also somewhat biased towards sparsely populated states. That rural bias has always been there from day one, and it's always been somewhat undemocratic. But it never seriously advantaged one party over another because for most of our country's history, for a couple hundred years, both of our major parties had urban wings and rural wings, so it didn't have a partisan effect. It's only in the early 21st century that US parties have split along urban rural lines. Today, as you know, Democrats are overwhelmingly based in metropolitan centers. Republicans are overwhelmingly based in sparsely populated territories, in smaller towns. That gives the Republicans, through no fault of their own, a systematic advantage in the Electoral College, in the Senate, and the Supreme Court, which allows them, importantly, to win and to hold national power without winning electoral majorities. Let me just repeat some data you already know. Republicans have won the popular vote for the president once since 1988. They've controlled the presidency for most of the 21st century, nevertheless. The popular majority was not enough for Joe Biden to win the presidency in uh, 2020. He had to win the popular vote by about four points. He'll probably need to do the same, win by about four points to retain the presidency in 2024. In recent years, the Democrats have needed to win the popular vote in the Senate um, by about five points. It's uh, ranged from three to six points, but an average of about five points to retain control of the Senate. So even if the Democrats consistently win 51, 52% of the national vote for Senate, the Republicans will control the Senate. Senators are elected to staggered six-year terms. A third of the chamber is up for election at every two years, right? So it takes three elections to, uh, a, a, a three elections in a six-year cycle to fully renovate the U.S. Senate. The Democrats have won the overall popular vote 
in every six-year cycle since 2000. In every six-year cycle since 2000. Republicans have controlled the Senate for almost half that period. The composition of the Supreme Court is also skewed. Four out of nine Supreme Court justices, Thomas, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, Coney Barrett, were confirmed by senators who represented less than half the U.S. population. Three of them, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, Coney Barrett, were nominated by a president who lost the popular vote and then confirmed by senators who represented less than half the U.S. population. If the popular vote, if the popular vote determined who won the presidency, and the popular vote determined who controlled the U.S. Senate, there would probably be a 6-3 liberal majority in, in the U.S. Supreme Court today. You often hear America described as stalemated between two evenly matched parties. Phenomena like polarization and gridlock are attributed to an unusual degree of parity between the two parties. Presidential elections are decided by razor-thin margins. The Senate is evenly split. But keep in mind, that parity is manufactured by our institutions. Again, Democrats won the popular vote in all but one presidential election since the 1980s. They've won the popular vote in every six-year cycle in the Senate since the late 1990s. That is not parity. You only get parity once our votes pass through the distortionary channels of our institutions. But the problem, the threat to our democracy, goes beyond the thwarting of electoral majorities. Our institutions are beginning to reinforce authoritarianism. Power in a democracy begets power. Couple of things. First of all, counter-majoritarian institutions reinforce Republican extremism by shielding the party from competitive pressure. Democratic competition is supposed to work like the market, right? When products don't sell, firms lose money. When firms lose money, they come under pressure come up with better products, to develop better products. Likewise, in democracy, parties are supposed to win elections. When parties repeatedly lose elections, they adapt and they broaden their appeal. They find ways to win more votes. When the Democrats lost three consecutive presidential elections in the 1980s, they moved to the center, they picked Bill Clinton, a moderate, to run in 1992, which helped them broaden their electoral base. That's what happens in most political parties. That process of adaptation is not happening in the Republican Party today. The Republicans, again, have lost the popular vote in seven out of eight presidential elections. They badly underperformed in 2018. They underperformed in 2020. They underperformed in 2022. But so far, there has been no serious effort to rethink strategy, to moderate, to broaden the appeal. And that is at least in part because our institutions give the Republican Party, again, through no fault of their own, give the Republican Party an electoral crutch. They don't have to win national majorities. They have to win 47 or 48% of the vote. So extremism doesn't cost them like it would in a truly competitive electoral environment. Think about it, despite all the craziness, despite January 6th, despite election denial, despite Trump's indictments, national power remains tantalizingly within reach for the Republican Party. They are very, very likely to win control of the Senate in 2024, and at this point, they have a coin flip chance of winning the presidency in 2024. If the Republicans had to actually win national majorities to win power, they would be under much, much greater pressure to rein in their extremism. 
There's also a risk I want to su suggest that our counter-majoritarian institutions will generate a feedback effect, a negative feedback effect, that threatens or that might even lock in minority rule. Again, the Republicans won the presidency and the Senate in 2016 despite losing the popular vote. That little instance of minority rule was pretty consequential because Trump and the Senate, both elected via minority rule, then filled three Supreme Court seats, creating what's likely to be a very enduring right-wing majority. That right-wing majority in the Supreme Court has enabled state-level authoritarianism, upholding egregious gerrymandering schemes that permit minority rule in legislatures in Wisconsin and elsewhere. In 2020, Trump's allies tried to use those gerrymandered state legislatures to steal a national election. They failed, but there is a world in which they could succeed. If the Supreme Court were to endorse, endorse the so-called independent legislature's doctrine, gerrymandered state legislatures could legally bypass the popular vote in their states and send their own electors to the Electoral College, overturning a national election. That would be, of course, the end of democracy. That's quite unlikely to happen. But the fact that it's even theoretically possible shows how prone we are to minority rule. Minority rule, I want to suggest, is a uniquely American problem. In no other established democracy can partisan minorities thwart electoral majorities as consistently or as consequentially as in the United States. Why is that the case? Excessive counter-majoritarianism used to be widespread in the world. In 19th century Europe, states had all sorts of undemocratic institutions, monarchic vetoes, indirect elections, unelected or badly malapportioned legislative bodies, and all kinds of filibuster-like mechanisms that allowed parliamentary minorities to thwart majorities. This stuff was widespread. In fact, in comparison, the US was pretty damn democratic in the 19th century, much more democratic than its European allies or other European states. But other established democracies gradually shed their pre-democratic institutions over the course of the 20th century. Britain, of course, weakened its House of Lords, stripping it of veto power. Denmark, New Zealand, Sweden, Portugal got rid of their undemocratic upper chambers. Germany, Austria, Belgium democratized their senates by uh, making them more proportional to the population. Britain, Canada, Australia, France, and other countries established cloture rules that allowed simple legislative majorities to end debate. Germany, Switzerland, and France uh, imposed term limits on Supreme Court justices. The UK, Canada, Sweden, and other democracies established a retirement age for Supreme Court justices. And every other presidential democracy on earth got rid of its electoral college. Argentina was the last one in 1994. So other democracies in the world became more democratic over the last century, eliminating 18th and 19th century institutions that allowed minorities to systematically thwart majorities. Only the United States has maintained most of its pre-democratic institutions more or less intact. So today, the US is the only presidential democracy in the world with an electoral college. We have the most malapportioned Senate in the world, except for Argentina and Brazil. No other democracy allows a congressional minority to routinely veto regular legislation that's backed by a majority, and the United States is the only established democracy in the world with truly lifetime appointments to the Supreme Court. Every other established democracy has either term limits or a mandatory retirement age. So the US is an outlier. It is uniquely 
counter-majoritarian. And that explains, at least in part, why the United States democracy seems to be uniquely threatened among Western democracies today. The rise of racial demo uh, multiracial democracy triggered an authoritarian reaction among a partisan minority. But more than any other Western democracy, America's counter-majoritarian institutions have protected and empowered that authoritarian minority. They have, they have amplified the authoritarian reaction. So we need some water. We need to democratize American democracy. We need a series of reforms that ensure that electoral majorities win power and govern. That means entrenching voting rights, ensuring equal access to the ballot. Pretty simple. It means, it means replacing the Electoral College with direct presidential elections. It means democratizing the Senate by eliminating the filibuster and giving more populous states greater representation. And it means establishing, I think, uh, uh, term limits for Supreme Court justices. These are not radical reforms. They already exist in most established democracies. Making it easier to vote, replacing the Electoral College, eliminating the filibuster, making the Senate more proportional, ending lifetime's tenure on the Supreme Court, each of those measures would simply bring the United States in line with most other established democracies. Problem, of course, is that the US Constitution is the world's, among democracies, the world's most difficult to reform. Constitutional reform requires strong bipartisan support, which means that it is virtually impossible. So for the moment, we are trapped by our institutions. However, I think it is very important that we begin a public conversation about constitutional reform. Not getting rid of the Constitution, amending the Constitution. We've got to start talking about it. We have to get it on the political agenda. In the meantime, because this is not happening before the 2024 election, we face an imminent authoritarian threat. And that, in my view, that means it is imperative that we build a broad coalition in defense of democracy, a much broader coalition than exists today, a coalition that is capable of isolating and politically defeating the MAGA movement despite biases created by our counter-majoritarian institutions. That coalition has got to include, I think, everybody from Bernie Sanders and Liz Cheney, or Bernie Sanders and AOC, to Liz Cheney, to George Bush, to conservative religious and business figures. I would even consider putting Republicans on Democratic Party tickets, the, 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 the use of fusion tickets. And it's not easy to do. Building a broad coalition is hard. It requires compromise. It requires political sacrifice. So Mitt Romney and Liz Cheney would have to elect Democrats they have opposed their entire lives. And progressives would need to make a series of serious concessions, the, the concessions that are necessary to bring conservatives on board. That is a very big ask. It is a, when, it, when push comes to shove, that is a very big ask of people. But these are not ordinary times. If we behave, and these are my final words, if we behave as if these are ordinary times, if we allow our politicians to behave as if these are ordinary times, we could lose our democracy. Again, the United States stands at a crossroad. America will either be a multiracial democracy in the 21st century or it will not be a democracy. Both of those roads lie ahead of us and there's no turning back. I'll stop there, thank you.
Thank you very much, Professor Levitsky. Yep, if you don't mind staying there, we'll get to Q&A in a second. Perfect. Thank you again, Professor. Uh, just an announcement or two before we move on to the Q&A. We have a pretty full table today at the luncheon, but there's been a couple cancellations. Therefore, three to five people that would like to join us for lunch, please see me after. Uh, we have only one more convocation left in the regularly scheduled convocation program. That is next Friday. That will be Arjun Singh City. Uh, he is a community activist, civil rights lawyer, and writer based in Washington, D.C. He works closely with Muslim, Arab, South Asian, and Sikh communities, and is an expert in policing, the war on terror, and racial and religious profiling. Very good. We hope to see you there. But for now, let's begin the Q&A. So, oh, sorry. Did the, did the uh, lunch spots open up while I was giving my talk? Just like, <laughs> started quitting the lunch while I was speaking? N not at all. Okay. Very good. Oh, we have our first Q&A. Oh, well, there's hands everywhere, as I figured there would be. Hi. Um, you mentioned at the end of your talk uh, progressives making concessions to create a bigger tent in the Democratic Party. Um, I'm wondering, because obviously protecting democracy is super important, it doesn't to me seem to be super important to everyone in this country. Um, and obviously the, the 2022 midterms were good for Democrats, but they weren't amazing for Democrats, and there are still people who aren't just gonna vote blue because it's the more Democratic Party. So I wonder if you worry that if there are a lot of concessions made in terms of bettering people's lives economically, socially, a lot of things progressives might wanna do that, for example, the Mitt Romneys and Liz Cheney's don't wanna do, if you're sacrificing that, could that drive down turnout for people who are more focused on bettering their lives than saving democracy? It's certainly possible. It's a great question, and it's a, it's a, tough, it's a tough dilemma. Um, and I certainly cannot say with any certainty. Um, the sense that, first of all, I think it's very important that political elites send a message to American voters that democracy is a priority and that democracy is at threat. One of the things that a bipartisan coalition that, I don't know, Liz Cheney and the presidential ticket, don't quote me on that, but um, the signal that it sells, sends, or maybe somebody uh, less strident than Liz Cheney, but um, the signal that that sends is that um, our political leaders recognize that this is not a normal election. This is not a red versus blue election. It's not donkeys against elephants, um, that, 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 that there's a crisis. And I think it's important to send that message to voters. The, how many left voters, how many progressive voters that will demobilize um, is, is really hard to say. And, and I don't know for sure. The message, you know, politics requires work. And politicians would have to sell this message to their base. One guy who's really good at that is Bernie Sanders. Like Bernie Sanders supporters did not love Joe Biden. Joe Biden is a centrist. Um, but, Joe, but Bernie Sanders was out there every day once he endorsed Biden selling the message that uh, not only for the good of democracy, but for the medium term good of whatever progressive cause you care about, um, the survival of democracy matters, right? The, arg the argument has to be to progressives that yes, you're gonna to have to put your favorite uh, environmental policy or tax policy on the shelf 
for four years to, to preserve democracy, but if we lose democracy, your environmental policy is going to be on the shelf for 20 years. But I, you know, if I, if I could tell you with certainty that my strategy would work, I would either be in a mental institution or have a much better paying job. Hello, thank you for coming and speaking to us. One might argue that changing the institutions that empower electoral minorities that you mentioned, like removing the electoral college or instituting Supreme Court justice term limits, primarily benefit the Democratic Party. In another sense, many liberal partisans openly support the measures that you say will save our democracy. So how does a strong supporter of democracy like myself talk to and convince someone who is a weak supporter of our democracy that this is a matter of national importance, um, specifically wondering like interpersonal communication, how do I talk to someone my age who disagrees with me? It's a, it's a tough one and not my, not my specialty. So it's a, it's a real problem. Um, I mean, everything, in the, in the public debate these days is now viewed through partisan lenses. So um, it, it is really, really hard to depoliticize any kind of conversation. And it's very, very hard for me to speak to author with authority to uh, Americans across the political spectrum uh, uh, about reforms that we need because it's viewed uh, as, as is partisan, and um, and it's true. Um, so, I, I, if I had a magic bullet solution, I would tell you. Um, I think a first of all, the filibuster is something that is very likely. Any of the filibuster is is something that actually may benefit the Republicans more quickly then it benefits the Democrats. I would not be shocked, in fact, to see the Republicans eliminate the filibuster before, before we get to it. So, but Daniel and I actually spoke to the Senate Democratic Caucus about eliminating the filibuster uh, via Zoom and over a, a lunch, and um, senators pushed back and said, look, we, we're, we're gonna be screwed over uh, when the next time Republicans win, the next time the Republicans win control of the Senate, we're gonna need that filibuster and our answer is no democracy is better off if, if the Democrats learn to live without that crutch so that's an area the, the filibuster is actually not an area where there's a clear partisan advantage um, the electoral college as well is is going to um, is not always benefited one party over the other there was um, a time in the 50s and 60s when conservatives were more supportive of eliminating the Electoral College than Democrats. So this, this tends to, to change. I think some calculate that it is, it, if, if and when Texas flips, that may never happen, but if it did, the, um, the Republican advantage in the Electoral College would, would go away. Um, so I mean, the, the best way to argue for a, uh, with somebody who's a, uh, another political view for institutional reform is to make the case that it can potentially benefit or harm both. It's not easy to do. Um, I would make the argument in, about fair competition. A democracy needs both parties to compete uh, on even terms, and it's better for the Republicans 
if they don't have a crutch. The Republicans will have an incentive to become a majority party, to, take, to do the work, to take the steps necessary to become a majority party only when they have to win national majorities. Um, I am looking forward to the day when Republicans successfully win votes among young people in the cities and among non-white voters. That will be a day that's not good electorally for Democrats because when, the, when Republicans can build a, uh, a, a truly multiracial electoral coalition, they'll win national elections. Um, they'll win the national popular vote. Um, but that's, that's a good day for democracy. I would frame it in those terms. Thank you so much for uh, talking to us. Um, last year I read uh, How Democracies Die in a political science class. And if I'm, I'm so sorry. <laughs> and if I recall your argument correctly, um, one thing you say is that we need strong political parties to gatekeep uh, who gets elected in order to keep authoritarians out of gaining power. How do you reconcile that sort of anti-majoritarian need for uh, strong gatekeeping in political parties with the current need for majoritarian sort of policy in government? Not entirely majoritarian. More majoritarian than the status quo. It, it's, a, it's a tough one. The position that a number of political scientists, including me and Daniel, take, which not everyone buys, is that um, democracy absolutely requires, a, a democratic system requires democratic politics among and between parties. It doesn't necessarily require democratic part, politics within parties. Um, I actually love primaries. I like voting in primaries. I, I see primaries as very double-edged because uh, we're basically talking about primaries, right? If, if uh, prior to primaries, party leaders were able to, to gatekeep much more effectively than in the primary era. So it was the democratization of American parties that weakened the gatekeeping capacity of our leaders. I like democratization, I like primaries, but it does open up the possibility, it does weaken the hands of party leaders. In most places, this is not a great argument, but in most places in most times, across Europe, democracies in Latin America, political parties are not internally very democratic. The US has the most democratic, internally democratic parties in the world. Um, it's possible to have a very vibrant, healthy democracy everywhere from South Korea to Finland to Denmark without uh, high levels of intra-party democracy. Again, I'm mixed about that. I don't feel great. I, in fact, we, were, we BS'd our way through that page in How Democracies Die because we didn't want to take a firm position against primaries. But we have to recognize that they're double-edged. Right. I think we actually have time for one more question, and I snubbed somebody back here who had asked. Yeah, so this is actually like a follow-up on the primary question. Do you worry that fears um, about authoritarian measures on the right might compel the Democrats to become even more authoritarian, as we're already seeing, and maybe foregoing debates, reordering the states that in which the order they vote to protect the neoliberal establishment? So, yes and no. First of all, the examples that you gave don't blow me away. You're talking about intra-party processes that are not a threat to the Democratic Party itself, right? We had much, 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 
more authoritarian intra-party politics for the first 180 years of our history than we have today, even if the neoliberals get away with everything they want. Um, the, that, I, democracy is not threatened. And you can quote me on this one. Democracy is not threatened if they change the order of the primaries in the Democratic Party. That said, your broader question is, is a reasonable one. And, and there is a, and there's been a vibrant debate within the, call it the broader political left, about how to respond to, to Trumpism. Um, do you respond by playing to win by any means necessary, or do you adhere to democratic norms and democratic rules? Um, and so I do worry about that, and we worried about it publicly in the book and got hit hard from the left for being uh, embracing democratic norms, pre-existing democratic norms too much. Um, I actually, my, my fears are moderate in, in terms of the Democratic Party because the Democratic Party is very different than the Republican Party. The Repu Democratic Party is a freaking mess. The Democratic Party is an incredibly heterogeneous, diverse conglomeration of interests, voters, activists, interest groups, which is, um, makes a lot of things difficult. It makes it hard for them to be coherent. I defy you to go and find a week in which you can't find a newspaper column of some columnist bitching and moaning about how the Democrats can't have a coherent message. And they never have a coherent message because they're a mess. They're a big, heterogeneous, diverse, unruly party. That prevents them from being coherent. It, uh, it, prevents, it, it, it makes them almost inevitably a very slow-moving, pragmatic political party. The, the, and that with all the flaws that that brings, it, I think, makes, the Demo it makes it difficult for the Democratic Party to move in a, an abruptly or jarringly authoritarian direction. I think it's less likely in a heterogeneous party than a homogeneous one. I know that's not really answering your question, but that's my answer. And on that, I apologize if I missed your hands, and including our friends on Zoom who sent in a few questions. But thank you very much for being here. That concludes our convocation for today. Thank you, Professor Levitsky. Thank all of thank you for the you great all. questions. <laughs>